You can take your Bibles, turn to Ezra chapter 9. We are, we are going to read beginning in verse 5 and through the end of the chapter. We, we will not get, get through all this material. Um, this, this, this is a, is a weighty passage. It's not that other passages are not weighty. The Bible is the Bible. But we recognize some seem to bring with them a depth of intensity. And I find this to be one. So we're going to read the entirety of it. And uh, with, with the time that we have, we'll reflect uh, on some of the elements of it. But this will certainly uh, take us at least another week. So verse 5, Ezra chapter 9, verse 5. At the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fasting... And having torn my garment and my robe, I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. And I said, O my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has grown up to the heavens." Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been very guilty. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, and to humiliation, as it is this day. Now for a little while, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a peg in His holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. For we were slaves. Yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage, but He extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. And now... Oh, our God, what shall we say after this? We have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land, with the uncleanness of the peoples of the land, with their abominations which have filled it from one end to another with their impurity. Now, therefore... Do not give your daughters as wives for their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land, and leave it as an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, since you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve, and have given us such deliverance as this, should we again break your commandments and join in marriage with the people committing these abominations, would you not be angry with us until you had consumed us so that there would be no remnant or survivor? Lord God of Israel, you are righteous. For we are left as a remnant as it is this day. Here we are before you in our guilt, though no one can stand before you because of this. As I said, 
There are some passages of Scripture that just seem to bring with it a weight, a depth, and an intensity. Ezra's prayer, though it may not be one you are familiar with, it's certainly not one that in, you know, just, just the normal course of life as God's people we find ourselves turning to. But, but I, I would rank, if you could do that kind of thing, I would rank this prayer of confession up there with the likes of Psalm 51 or Psalm 32, these other classic texts that reflect on the sinfulness of man while at the same time reflecting on the grace and mercy of God. Ezra really does us a service here. And this, this is where the prayers of the Bible can become so helpful, especially in those moments where you wonder, what do I pray for? How do I pray? And in particular, if we find ourselves before God struggling and dealing with and coming under the weight of our own sin and disobedience, Ezra's prayer just stands as a, as a profound reflection of what it looks like to pray in the midst of our sin. Last week, we turned our attention to the last two chapters of Ezra. Chapters 9 and 10, it's, it, it feels a bit like an odd way to end the book in that it kind of ends on a bad note. I mean, yes, there are some important movements here, but, but, but after all of the, the story, the exiles returning, rebuilding the temple, a second wave then of exiles coming back, and we've explored the, the theme of God moving in the heart of two different pagan kings and God using men like Ezra to do this great reviving, rebuilding kind of work, here we now get to the end, we find there is sin in the camp. And not some kind of new or before unpracticed act of disobedience. This is like, and some of you would know this more than others, it's like a record player whose needle gets stuck, all right? For the young ones, you can ask your parents what that means. Some may even have to ask your grandparents what that means, all right? But getting stuck in this same line over and over and over again. And that's what it feels like. As they say, reading the history of Israel is like listening to that kind of a broken record. Over and over. There is sin in Jerusalem, and I would contend this is one of the main reasons. This is fundamental to God's mission for Ezra. The reason why now we are nearly 80 years removed from the building of the temple. Why does God move in the heart of a king once again? Why does God once again provide a man who will serve as his prophet to God's people? It is because they find themselves in the depths of sin once again. It, it, it is a story of both the depressing depravity of mankind and yet the glory of God's grace and mercy extended to habitual sinners. God, I believe, is doing an important work. He's making sure that He preserves His people. And so to do so, He, he sends this group of exiles back along with Ezra. Because again, there's problems in Jerusalem. This people who have rebuilt the temple, they've basically reestablished the calendar, at least to a large degree. 
ideally they should be living in covenant faithfulness. And I have every reason to believe that there was a period of time when they would have done so. But bit by bit, over the years, and this is how these things can happen, right? Bit by bit, we give here, we give there, uh, we, we get a little flirty with the world around us, then we start talking more, and then we start going out on dates, and before you know it, we're in a full-fledged relationship. But the very people God said, separate yourselves from. This is what has happened in Jerusalem. And so we, we kicked this off last week again, looking at Ezra chapter 9 in particular, these two chapters really highlight for us the ways in which God's people respond to and come out of the worldliness that has infected it. Now, there's a specific issue in mind for Ezra, and it is intermarriage. We saw it in the prayer. We heard it last week in verses 1 through 5 when we studied this, kind of did an introduction to this, and and noted that, that fundamental to the problem is that they are intermarrying. They, they are engaged in relationships with pagans. We noted last week the issue of intermarriage is not a race issue. It is a faith issue. The problem is they run the risk of being corrupted by the paganism of these surrounding people groups. So God forbid them from intermarrying because it would corrupt. And that is, in fact, the consistent story we find throughout Israel's history. And so, when, when, when Ezra hears of this, that sets off a, 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 a set of reactions designed to restore the people back again. Now, for our purposes, we're looking at it from the broader theme of addressing worldliness among the people of God. What does it look like to be a people who come out from among them and are separate? To be holy as God is holy. What, what does it look like to be that kind of people? Few threats are as dangerous to the life as the, of the church as that of worldliness. So what, what, what do we need to, to do in order to be a faithful people? Well, well, so we look at chapters 9 and 10. We see several ways we react to this. Number one, we looked at this last week. We won't flesh it out again, but I think there's still a blank on your notes. First step is conviction slash contrition. We note in verses 1 through 5, there is this, upon learning of the situation in Jerusalem, Ezra's reaction is one of deep contrition. I mean, a, a deep burden over the, the nature of the sin, and that's where it begins. There has to be a genuine heart and mind reaction to sin. Contrition, conviction, recognizing it for what it is, the danger that it really is. This morning, we're going, to look at, we're going to move on now to the second step, dealing with worldliness, and that is confession. Confession. So here we get to the heart of this prayer. And that's what verses 6 to the end of the chapter represent. This is Ezra offering this prayer of confession. Now, the people are also going to confess in chapter 10. We'll reflect on that when we get there. We're going to take some time and kind of consider in a little more depth the nature of this prayer. What you're about to get on the outline is not in your notes. That means you're going to have to write every bit of it down. Understand that's tough, all right, but I think you can, you'll be able to manage. So what, what is the, then the next natural step? I mean, the, 
the way in which, one of the ways in which you can identify the genuineness of contrition is that it is followed with confession. By confession, I mean just what it sounds like. Owning up, coming clean, agreeing with what God's Word says about the violations of, his, of that Word. That is, to confess is to agree with God over what He has said about your sin. Because obviously confession is not so much informing God of my sin, right? There's never a moment where I bow the knee and confess to the Lord, I've done this or I've done that, and He goes, great, thanks, I was unaware. Now that's part of the reality of God's omnipresence. No, in the midst of whatever sin, no, God was right there. He's not unaware. In fact, in in many ways, He might be far more aware of all of the nitty-gritty details. And so confession is not so much informing God of something He didn't already know. It is a matter of accepting the reality of sin for what it is. Now, here's what this prayer then represents. And so I'm about to do something, by the way, my preaching professor said to never do. You all know, though, as the baby of the family, what I think about people telling me what to do or not do, right? Okay. He's not the boss of me. Okay. So I'm going to give you an outline and an outline. So here we go. Because I think this prayer then represents a great pattern of what this kind of confession looks like, and we see four elements to it. Four elements to it, and this morning we're just going to reflect on the first one, all right? So just hold on for a few minutes as then we consider what does it look like to genuinely confess before the Lord. Number one, important part of a true confession is to say we are responsible for our sin. We are responsible for our sin. You could add a little bit to that, by the way, and we'll see it here in the verses. Not only that we are responsible for our sin, but we are also responsible for the consequences we experience because of it. Our sin is our fault. Here's what we're trying to resist here, and here's what Ezra does such a great job of illustrating for us. We're trying to avoid the tendency, when confronted with our sin to respond by saying, yeah, but... It's kind of what we do, though, right? It's what our first parents did, right? I mean, after the fall, was that not kind of their go-to reaction? Upon being confronted by God in their sin, Adam, in perhaps one of the boldest moves in the Bible, blames the only two beings in the universe, right? I mean, aside from, I mean, I understand the serpent, right? Okay, but, but you talk about the only two beings in his life of any significance. He says, the woman you gave me. So Adam, in one fell swoop, there's only one other person on the planet, and there's only the one true God, and Adam finds a way of blaming them both for his own sin. It's amazing. No, we, no, we, no it, it comes natural to us to blame, deflect, reject responsibility. Yeah, but here's what's amazing about Ezra's example. There's none of that. 
Notice how he says this. Verse five, uh, verse six. And I said, "Oh my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God." This, by the way, shows the depth of contrition. I, I I'm so weighted down with the realities of sin. I can't even look up. And then notice what he says. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. Ezra says, the reason why I'm weighted down like this, the reason why I cannot lift my head up, is because I'm drowning in iniquity. You know what I find fascinating about this? Two things. One, that at this point... Ezra is not identifying a specific sin yet. You notice how he's staying pretty general here? In other words, this leaves the door wide open. He's just, he's using the word iniquity, which is a pretty general word, kind of like transgression. Well, kind of like the word sin. I mean, it's just a, it's, it's, they're, they're largely synonymous. There may be nuanced distinctions, but, but to talk about iniquity is to talk about those ways in which we have violated God's expectations for his people. But I also find it fascinating that he speaks in the, as one of them, right? He speaks in the first person, plural nonetheless. But notice he doesn't say, I am humiliated because their sins, their iniquities. We can be pretty certain Ezra has not married among the pagans, all right? Ezra's not done this. The exiles have probably not done this. I mean, I I can't speak for sure. The issue being brought to Ezra is that the people living in the land have intermarried with the nations also living in the land. This is not something specifically that Ezra has done. But what is Ezra doing? He is bearing the weight and burden of the reality of being among a sinful people. As far as Ezra is concerned, since this is a sin infecting in large scale, the community of God, and Ezra is a part of that community of God, he is owning that for himself. I would contend that this is a reaction to sin that in our largely individualized culture, we, we, number one, we don't do, and maybe we even resist. But, but Ezra kind of gives us maybe even something like what Isaiah did. Remember Isaiah chapter 6 when he sees God high and lifted up and he he hears the angels proclaiming, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. What does Isaiah say? I'm undone, meaning I'm being ripped apart from the inside out because I'm an unclean man and I live among an unclean people. Ezra doesn't do any finger pointing. He doesn't take an opportunity. Though we probably wouldn't blame him if he did, but he doesn't. He owns the sin that he finds among the people of God because he's among the people of God. And the reason why I think it's significant at this point then, he chooses not to yet mention the issue of marriage. It's because undoubtedly, though there's one sin in particular that is the focus of the prayer, Ezra would be all too aware of the other sins that are in him as well. So uh, it's not just the one sin. He uses plural, all right? It's not just the intermarriage. There, there are multiple issues going on. The text doesn't tell us what all they may be. It doesn't tell us what's going on in the heart of Ezra. 
But upon hearing of this violation of God's command, his reply is to take responsibility, to own it, to come clean. We have committed this sin, sin that has reached, we're drowning in it, and it has reached the very heavens, not only for himself, but as a corporate part of the people of God. I love this quote from Jonathan Edwards in his classic work, Religious Affections. I would commend this work to you. It is not an easy read. It is Edwards reflecting on what real revival looks like. He says this, When God changes our hearts through the new birth, He gives us new desires for holiness and hatred towards sin. These emotional qualities and many others will increase over time, but a distinguishing mark of a true Christian is that he mourns over sin, both his own sins and the sins of others. That's what Ezra does. Recognizing the depth and, and, and the breadth of the sin among the people. But notice how he's not done with this. He's also going to own these consequences here. And he's going to say, this is nothing new. Verse 7, since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been very guilty and for our iniquities. We, our kings and our priests, have been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, and to humiliation as it is this day. Here's what I think is so profound, again, about Ezra's example. Not only does he himself take responsibility for the reality of sinfulness, he also owns the consequences of it. And it's interesting the way he says this. Again, he's not, he's not, not only is he not deflecting, he's saying, we've committed these sins and we've always been committing these sins. It's not like every generation of God's people had new and fresh sins they were committing that no one had ever seen before. It's the same old song. It's the same story. I mean, is, is this, and is this not often the pattern that we find ourselves experiencing? Very often, and I know this is hard. I know, I know Sunday morning, this is, this is a weighty message. I get it. And I, and I understand how the word then can, can really bring a burden upon the heart, but this is important because there are times we find ourselves more often than not confessing not new sins to God, but confessing not only a sin, but our frustration over the same sins again and again and again. This is what Ezra acknowledges. It's not new to us. Our fathers did this, and their fathers before them, and their fathers before them. This has kind of been the thing. And not only that, but, but our kings and our priests and, and us, we, we have faced punishment. We face chastisement. God, you have brought upon us righteous justice as a result. In fact, later he's going to say, you might have picked up on it when we read it. He's going to say, you've, you've judged us far less than we even deserved. Again, as not making any excuses. He's not wiggling out of this. No, what, what's coming to us is deserved. And this reminds us that our sins are nothing new. And, and, and what I think is important here is a recognition that with our sin comes consequences. 
You know, he could have whined. We're pretty good at deflecting. We're also pretty good at whining. Well, I, I'm not going to speak for you. you. You may not. You may be just like Ezra. I, however, can do a fair amount of whining, all right? And you don't know the mental gymnastics I can go through to convince myself, A, it's not sin, and B, I don't deserve the consequences I'm facing, all right? You, you've got nothing compared to my ability to do that. I, I could even work in a theological quote or Bible verse if I had to. This, this is what the Word does to us, though. It is sometimes just like that jackhammer that just beats the hardness of a heart. This is what sin does. Sin, sin blinds, sin obfuscates, sin encourages us to not take responsibility, to get our eyes off of what we do, have done, to get our eyes on other people or other things. But this comes at us full bore and saying, no, that's not how this works. A part of confession is owning it, taking responsibility and recognizing that the consequences for our sin are deserved. I like what R.W. Dale has said about this. It is partly because sin does not provoke our own wrath that we do not believe that sin provokes the wrath of God. It's a pretty short statement, but I think there's a lot packed into that. This is what we do. And what has our culture done, by the way, to sin today? Is there such a thing anymore? Well, no. These are diseases, dysfunctions. These are quirks of personality. Or in some cases, there's nothing wrong with you at all. It's just who you are. You should just own it. Why would God create anybody like that. Boy, that is the alarming allure of worldliness, isn't it? Subtle shift moving us not in giant leaps and bounds, but one little step at a time. And Ezra's prayer is good because it brings us back into reality, forces us to focus on the realities of sin, the nature of our sin, to own it, and to confess it, to not try and justify it, but to recognize God is just in the judgment He brings upon our sin. In fact, I got one more quote. I know I don't normally do this, but I found a string of them, and one of them was in something I was already reading that I thought, wow, this really does seem to, to fit. And this is from C.S. Lewis. When a man is getting better, He's talking in the Christian context, by the way. When a man is getting better, he understands more and more clearly the evil that is still in him. When a man is getting worse, he understands his own badness less and less. That's pretty insightful as well, isn't it? So this is good. I know our culture doesn't say this. Our culture would suggest that what I'm doing, in fact, some in our culture would suggest what I'm doing to you right now is an abuse of my power. Like a bully in the pulpit, making you feel <gasps> guilty for sin. But you know who needs it? The guy in the pulpit. You know who else needs it? You do. Because you and I find ourselves in the same boat. The, the, the reality is we do live in this world. We, the, the fullness of God's sanctifying work, that work of God by His Spirit 
bringing us into the fullness of Christ has not yet been completed. We can talk as if it's been completed because one day it will. When we see his face, we know it'll be done and our struggle with sin will be over. But that's not happening. You and I still have to get up and go out every day. We face the reality of a flesh that is still tempted by the world. We face the reality of a mind that can still be led astray. And so this is an ongoing reality for us. Nonetheless, you and I can be grateful that God in his grace even extends to us a gift like this. God could write us off. God could have killed the remnant, as Ezra is going to imply, but he doesn't. God extends grace. He extends mercy. He extends forgiveness to the contrite, to the humble, to those who confess. The first step's a hard one. I get it. But to own our sin. And to right now resist the temptation to think this. I hope those people are listening to him. But instead to think, I should be listening to this. Here's what I'm asking you to do, church, then to do a deep dive. I'm not the Holy Spirit. You may think I try to be. I promise I don't. I understand his role and mine, okay? I am not the Holy Spirit. I will trust him by his word to bring that word to bear on your life in the appropriate kinds of ways. What I'm asking us to do is to do a serious evaluation of who we are and how we relate to the world around us. Because as Aaron has prayed, as I've said many times, this world needs a healthy church. And to be a healthy church, we've got to manage what would be the devastating consequences, the ongoing destructive consequences of worldliness. Is there any in me? To what degree am I allowing a love for the world to rob me of a love for my God? What is the sin that is in me? that needs to be confessed before God. Because next week, you're going to have to come next week, all right? I know I leave you in a hard place, all right? But Ezra's prayer doesn't leave us in a hard place. Because next, because next week, we're, we're, we're going to dive into then the two, the two provisions God gives to us, His grace and His Word. Which you and I can know for sure then that we have fellowship with Him. Our sin, as believers in Christ does not break our relationship. We are in Him and He is in us. We are in the hands of Christ. Christ is in the hands of God and no one can snatch us away. Our relationship is set because of the death of Jesus Christ, His atoning sacrifice, His glorious resurrection, the work of the Spirit to make us new. But we can hurt our fellowship with Him. So my call on you is to confess your sin. Take advantage of then the ongoing grace of God to restore you back into fellowship. Of course, I'd also make an appeal to anybody here who does not know Christ. This is where it would begin. That you first confess that you are a sinner unable to save yourself. That God in His grace has provided the only means of salvation in Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection. By asking for that forgiveness based on nothing but what Christ and Christ alone has done in that saving work. And you can be saved. You can know fellowship with the Father, the forgiveness of sins. But it begins with conviction and confession. Then as believers, we don't have to get saved again. But God in His grace continues to extend mercy to us when we come confessing, taking responsibility and then allowing the grace of God to restore and to renew us. And that is the good news. How will you respond then to the Word of God? As we sing together this morning, we're going to sing one more song, and it is going to be about the greatness of this grace of God. Will we then submit to His Word? Let's stand together. I'm going to pray.
And after I pray, we will sing. Father God, we thank you once again for the gathering of your people. We are privileged to be here on this Lord's Day. We thank you for the ways in which we've been able to join together in song, singing the great truths of of who you are and how you have intervened to save. We thank you for being able to come under your word. And we speak the words of Ezra. We, We confess our iniquity. We confess our sin before you, O God. We own the reality of it and the consequences that come from it. And we ask God for your grace and mercy to be extended. That we'd avail ourselves of the resources given to us in salvation that we might walk in faithfulness before you. So to you we surrender our lives, praying that you by your Spirit would bring your word to bear upon us to do the work in us you designed to do, and all for your glory. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.